from a very, very early age, I honestly, I, I didn't really know that I struggled with depression until I was about 26 or 27. And somebody told me that's what was going on. But I remember being very young before the age of 10 and thinking about suicide. I never knew what it was like to be happy. I never knew what it was like to know peace. I just felt this constant crushing weight on my chest and it felt like my skin was burning and I was very anxious, you know, anxiety, depression, early trauma, all just sort of added up. And then I became a Christian when I was about 15, 16 in a church that was very much rooted in this idea that if you have faith and you're right with God, everything will be good. That the only suffering that should happen in this life is essentially persecution. That God wants everyone to be healthy and wealthy and happy. So with that, there were a lot of people who believed that if you were depressed or sad, that you were in sin, you were not praying or reading your Bible enough, you were selfish. So I began to form this idea that I was toxic and bad because of the things I struggled with and because I couldn't fix myself. And I was very angry with God at times, and I didn't believe He loved me because I couldn't understand why He wouldn't fix me and make me better so that I wasn't so bad and sinful all the time. And looking back, I can see that some of the leaders around me just were simply ill-equipped. They didn't know what they were doing. They hadn't been exposed to a lot of information about mental health. And they were doing the best they could with what they had. And they really loved me and wanted me to get better. And they genuinely thought that that was the way for me to get better. Episode R051 features Sarah Robinson. Sarah is a writer who is open about her struggles with self-harm, suicidal ideation, and depression. When Sarah decided to share her thoughts about suicide in a more public forum, people started asking questions, thankfully the right kind. They wanted to understand rather than to harshly judge those who have died by their own hands. This is an important conversation. In 2016, nearly 45,000 Americans aged 10 or older died by suicide. This according to the Centers for Disease Control. What a gift that Sarah has chosen to share her story with Reboots listeners and on her blog, Beautiful Between at beautifulbetween.com. Here's Sarah's story. Hey there, you're dialed into Reboots, featuring stories about people who have been forced to start over in life or in business, all walks of life, anonymous or named, high profile or low down, stories with heart, soul, and grit. Because knowing and sharing our stories is essential for living a life of joy, experiencing healthy relationships, and impacting the world around us in a positive way. Here's your host, Tracy Winchell. Hey, 
Sarah, thank you so much for inviting us into your life today. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm so grateful to be here. I want you to just give us a taste of what your life is like day to day uh, before we dive into your story. So what you doing today? Well, today I'm talking to you. I live in Nashville with my super creative photographer husband. I'm a writer and do some marketing for some clients, one in particular. And so I was working on some blog posts this morning Since we are both self-employed, we have super flexible schedules. So that means we get to go out on a walk in the middle of the day and he gets to work in the morning and then go help out his sister and rebuild something in her house. And so our days are pretty flexible. I try to get in some writing, some creative work every day. In addition to writing, I knit and I sew and I draw and I paint. And so I'm trying to incorporate more and more of that in my life just because it's really good for my soul. Wow. Yeah. It's beautiful and sunny today in Nashville and we've had a lot of rain this winter and spring. So I'm soaking it up. Right. Well, just to mark the time, um, we're in the final full week of April, 2019. I'm in Arkansas and, um, we, we've had a lot of rain too. And I live in the Arkansas river bottoms. And Mm. yesterday I got our lawnmower literally stuck in the mud. Oh no. Yeah. So that's rough. The self-employment allows us the opportunity to be flexible, which kind of got me stuck in the mud yesterday. (laughs) So anyway, long story. (laughs) So we were introduced to each other through a mutual friend, Steve Austin. Shout out to Steve. Shout out to Steve, one of my favorite people. And mine. Um, And you helped Steve with his book, Catching Your Breath, right? Yeah, I edited his book and Steve and I have written together for gosh, almost four years now. We met accidentally in a Facebook group for a course I was taking that he wasn't supposed to be in the Facebook group. (laughs) And he was just like, oh, this is a writer's group. I'm a writer. I should join. And we connected and we've written together ever since. And I I helped with his previous book, his self-care journal, Mm -hmm. helped do quite a bit of editing for that. And then really did all of it for this one. About a year ago, we were starting on it last spring, last summer. And so that was a lot of fun. Where does somebody find your writing and what do you write about? You can find me at beautifulbetween.com. And I write about living well in the mess and the now and the not yet. And I write very openly about a lot of things that the church doesn't talk about, including for a while now, primarily mental health issues. You know, prior to getting married, I talked about singleness and grief and doubts and, you know, just kind of any hard thing and just just finding joy and beauty in the midst of the mess that is this broken world. Your story is really interesting and the whole reason that, that over the past, I guess, year or so, you've kind of become a quote, air quotes, overnight sensation, because a whole (laughs) lot of hard work went into the middle of that. (laughs) Yeah. Tell me about the blog post that kind of catapulted you into a much more public conversation. 
Sure. So last year, right after Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade had both died by suicide within a very short window of time, I just sort of grew angry because I was anticipating the things that are often said within the church and by Christians on social media about people who die by suicide, Mm -hmm. that it's selfish, that it is a sure sign they're going to hell. How could anyone ever do such a thing? What's wrong with them? And I was actually talking to Steve one day and was kind of just venting about this. It was almost like, you know, I hesitate to label myself this way, but it it felt almost like a righteous indignation. Mm. And I told him, I want to write a post where I call it, I love Jesus, but I want to die. And he was like, first, like, that's not true right now. And I was like, yes, I'm doing good. That's not true. But I've certainly been there. And Steve has too. And we've talked about that quite a bit. So I wrote this article just talking about how there's all of these myths about mental illness and particularly severe mental illness that's linked to suicide. Things like it's selfish, you don't pray or read your Bible enough, you're not serving God wholeheartedly, you know, it being a sign of you being faithless, not having enough faith. And so I I just put it out there and I did put a lot of hard work into that post because I knew it was an important message. I didn't expect so many people to read it or to see it, but, you know, once I published it, you know, maybe a week or two after Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade had died, it started to get shared and shared and shared. And Steve also shared it with a friend of his who was an editor at Relevant Magazine at the time. And Relevant Magazine decided to publish it on their website. So it very quickly wound up going viral and continued to be a viral post for months. And the traffic has definitely gone down. But even to this day, if you Google, at least last time I checked, for a long time, if you Googled, I want to die, my article came up on the front page. And so every day I get people coming to my website, hundreds of people coming and reading that post because they Googled, I want to die. That's why I talk a great deal about mental health these days. That's why, as I mentioned earlier, before we started recording, I try to be a really open book about mental health issues, about my struggles with depression and anxiety and trauma and suicide and self-harm because There's all of these myths out there and people are dying. And if it's easier to talk about it in the church, if it's easier to talk about it in Christian circles, then it becomes easier for us to know how to help one another and walk Mm. with one another and save lives. Yeah. This is a topic that hits close to me. I want to be careful about privacy, but someone that I've known my whole life took his life uh, late last year. Mm. And I. That's awful. Yeah. And I get you. So uh, forgive me for, for kind of needing to gather myself here for a second. Um, of course. I lost my, my train of thought because my heart started racing. Aww. Um, 
as tragic as it is for those we lose to suicide, for those who are trying to live a life of faith and think their Christian faith isn't strong enough because they're thinking about suicide. Mm. That's all tragic, and I want to want to kind of unpack that a little bit as we move forward. But I also am beginning to develop a great deal of empathy for the family members of those who commit suicide. Yeah. And a lot of times they think they have failed. Mm-hmm. Maybe they think God has failed that relative. So sure. do you have a sense that part of the reason that post went so viral is that people are reaching out for some kind of understanding about how faith and suicide, they're not mutually exclusive? Yeah, I really do think so. I do get a lot of emails and messages from people who've lost loved ones. Oftentimes, when somebody has lost either a family member or a friend to suicide, it exponentially increases the likelihood that that individual will die by suicide as well. So if I had a sibling or a parent or a cousin or a good friend who died by suicide, I am way more likely to end my life simply because the grief is so severe. It's such a complicated grief because of all those things you mentioned that there's this sense of failure and uh, did I betray them and did they betray me and what could I have done to change this? And I think oftentimes those, those what ifs are common in grief, but it's especially poignant and painful, I think, for people who've lost loved ones to suicide. I actually am in the very early stages of working on a book based on this article. And my agent reached out to me because she had seen one of her Facebook friends shared my article and his comment, this gets me every time I can't even imagine it, but he says, I wish I'd read this two years ago because then my son might still be alive. Mm. And so I, I do think a lot of times people are looking for understanding and looking for some sort of peace and solace. And I think in some cases, when people find information like my article, it is reassuring to understand the severity of what's going on inside somebody that while there are things we can do to help, nobody can fix it. That's right. No parent can fix it for their child. No sibling can fix it for their brother or sister. So I think that is reassuring to some people, but the flip side is I think for many people, they don't realize how severe the suffering is and Mm -hmm. how it's physical and how it consumes every waking moment. When you're to that point where you're seriously considering suicide, you're hurting bad and that I don't know if that is encouraging, you know, or, or brings peace to people. But I do think people are searching for it. I think people are searching for solace 
I do think they're definitely searching to find out like, was my loved one's faith intact? Right. You know, because there's this belief that suicide is like an unforgivable sin. Mm-hmm. And that's just simply unscriptural. There's no basis for that in scripture. And in fact, many heroes of the faith were suicidal or prayed for God to let them die at different points in scripture. Yeah, like Elijah. Yeah, Elijah, Jonah did. Jonah, that's right. David is, I don't remember if he like came right out and said, I, I wish I were dead or I want he did a die. lot of hand wringing, though, for sure. Yeah, yeah, he sure did. He was definitely suffering. Yeah, and Job, who oh goodness, yeah, he was suffering so much, and he cursed the day he was born and wished he'd never been born, and all of that. So there's just simply no basis mm. for this belief that suicide is an unforgivable sin. In most cases, it is a terrible end to a terrible disease. Mm -hmm. And so a church tradition had arisen that said, you know, people who die by suicide go to hell. And I don't think that is, obviously, I don't know. I haven't been to the other side, but I, I don't think that's a fair assessment. This is a difficult topic for a lot of people. I just want to give people an opportunity to to check out a really cool resource that that you have that helps people talk to people who are struggling with mental illness or thoughts of suicide. Where can someone go to get this really helpful guide? Yeah, if you actually go to beautifulbetween.com, right at the top of the page of my blog, there will be a link to that article about I love Jesus, but I want to die. And there's a link within that article to the resource. It is a simple little two-page document that on the first page, it just gives you kind of some tips and tricks on how to talk to people struggling. And then page two is a list of phrases that you can use. It's beautifulbetween.com slash what to say beautifulbetween.com slash what to say. Awesome. So, you know, if you just really don't know what to say to someone, you can use those exact phrases and those come from a few different places. The helpful things that people have said to me, the opposite of the unhelpful things that people have said to me. Mm -hmm. And from my time working in a residential facility with young women who had severe mental illnesses, many of whom had attempted or were thinking about attempting suicide and, you know, what just seemed to be helpful and life-giving to those young women. Mm. Well, thanks for putting that together. I'm definitely going to be sharing that with not just Reboots listeners, but people who want to subscribe to the reboots email list. So that's coming very soon. Very cool. With that, I want to dive into your story, which kind of begins from obviously not at the very beginning, (laughs) (laughs) but within the context of I love Jesus, but I want to die. 
you talk about having a conversation with someone uh, a lot like what we've just talked about in terms of uh, someone just not understanding why someone would attempt to take their own life or to take their own life. And you caught yourself in a moment, mm-hmm. kind of, if I understand, you were kind of shocked at what came out of your mouth. A little bit, yeah. Which was? I understand. I know what that's like. They, I was actually on a work trip you know, it's not your normal, like we're hanging out by the beach, eating ice cream. And this guy mentioned a friend of a friend who had died by suicide. And I just felt sick and my heart started racing just like you did a little bit ago when you were thinking about your loved one who passed away. And I'd never really spoken up in a setting like that. There were, you know, three or four people there. And I just said, I know what that's like. I completely get that. And the guy asked, what was that like? They, you know, they all kind of were stunned for a few minutes. Like, oh my gosh, did you just say that? Because that's not something we talk about in polite company. Mm Mm-hmm. So I just started to tell them what it feels like and the physicality of it and the exhaustion and what it does to your brain. And, you know, they asked some questions and, you know, I kind of, kind of answered it. And that was really one of the things that became the impetus for this article. So just to be crystal clear, you owned up among some kind of friends, but mostly acquaintances Mm -hmm. that you had either thought about suicide or Mm -hmm. that made an attempt on your life. Wow. Yeah. A couple of the people I was sitting there with, I knew fairly well, um, but the gentleman who'd made the comment about a friend of a friend who'd passed away, you know, I'd only met him a handful of times. We haven't spent much time together. And so I think that's a big part of why it was so shocking. That's rarely something that you'll talk about with your closest friends, let alone someone you just very casually know. So can you share with our Reboots listener what you shared in that moment with the guy that you kind of went, yeah, me too. Yeah. What happened? And how wonderful and how grateful that I am that you're still here. Can you just kind of walk us through what that whole experience was like? Sure. So I kind of jokingly say I have the trifecta of risk factors for depression. There's many more, but I have three pretty significant ones. There is a clear family history of mental illness on both sides in my family. I experienced some very early trauma. I was around some addiction and some just quite a bit of dysfunction in my early years. And I just happened to have a melancholy personality. For anyone who's familiar with the Enneagram, I'm a four on the Enneagram, and we're kind of known for like loving the beauty of sadness in a way. So, like a rainy day. Yeah. 
When I'm doing well, when I'm not doing well, I'm like, for the love of God, please send the sunshine back. Um, yeah, so from a very, very early age, I didn't know it. Honestly, I, I didn't really know that I struggled with depression until I was about 26 or 27, and somebody told me that's what was going on. But I remember being very young, before the age of 10, and thinking about suicide. You know, just feeling like I never, I never knew what it was like to be happy. I never knew what it was like to know peace. I just felt this constant crushing weight on my chest and it felt like my skin was burning and I was very anxious, dealt with a lot of fear as a child. And now, um, even though I've done a lot of work and don't deal with a lot of anxious thoughts anymore, I still have very physical symptoms of anxiety you know, anxiety, depression, early trauma, all just sort of added up. And then I became a Christian when I was about 15, 16 in a church that was very much rooted in this idea that if you have faith and you're right with God, everything will be good. Everything will be okay. That the only suffering that should happen in this life is essentially persecution that God wants everyone to be healthy and wealthy and happy. So with that, there were a lot of people who believed that if you were depressed or sad, that you were in sin, you were not praying or reading your Bible enough, you were selfish. If you, I had people tell me, if you would just focus on other people, like it's impossible to be depressed or sad or down if you're focusing on other people. And, you know, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all, even about yourself and even about like what you're struggling with. And so from a very, the very early stages of my faith, I began to form this idea that I was toxic and bad because of the things I struggled with and because I couldn't fix myself. And I was very angry with God at times. And I didn't believe he loved me because I couldn't understand why he wouldn't fix me and make me better so that I wasn't so bad and sinful all the time. And looking back, I can see that some of the leaders around me, especially my youth pastors at the time, just were simply ill-equipped. They didn't know what they were doing. They hadn't been exposed to a lot of information about mental health and they were doing the best they could with what they had and they really loved me and wanted me to get better and they genuinely thought that that was the way for me to get better. I'm very close to some of those people now and you know we've all grown and all gotten healthier and I say all that because I think oftentimes when People with mental health are wounded by the church. It makes it so difficult to trust and hope that your relationships with church leaders or just the church in general can get better. I just say that to say mine have. Good. So, yeah. So as I mentioned in in that article, I love Jesus, but I want to die. There was a couple in my church who, you know, were a little older than me, maybe eight, 10 years older than me. And they became a very safe place for me. And they were very encouraging and life-giving. 
And in college, I'd started self-harming. I was cutting and was actively planning um, a suicide attempt. And one night I showed up on their doorstep and just told them what was going on and said, I needed help and I'm scared and I, I don't know what to do. And for the first time in my life, you know, someone looked at me and said, I'm not disappointed in you. It's okay. This isn't your fault. For some reason, you're hurting and there's lies you believe about yourself, but God isn't mad at you. It's not anything you've done. And that was the very beginning of a a very long and slow journey towards greater wholeness and healing and learning to live with my mental illness and where it you know, is just a part of my life. You know, it doesn't restrain me. It doesn't define me. It doesn't prevent me from having this amazing life, but it is something I have to be very attentive to, or I can easily be back to that place where I'm considering suicide or where I'm considering cutting myself. Yeah. What are the some specific things that you do to put yourself in a position First of all, not to want to cut, but then when your mind takes a U-turn and does what minds do Mm -hmm. to safeguard so that it's really hard for you to act on that impulse. Those are great questions. The first thing is I have done a lot of work in therapy. I... I tried to go to therapy four times before I found one good therapist. So my fifth therapist I tried was a fit. And that was over the course of like five or six years. I've been in therapy every week now for three years, I think it is. And I've done a lot of work to enable myself to understand these are symptoms. These are not things I actually want. So understanding that for me, Self-harm urges come from a place of shame. Mm. So when I'm experiencing a sense of shame, I experience it in a certain way physically in my body, and then there's the urge to self-harm. So understanding, okay, these are the triggers. Um, A mentor of mine, Jeannie Mayo, would call them fuse shorteners. Like if, you know, whatever the behavior is or the action is, is like a stick of dynamite, what's going to shorten the fuse so that it's easier to get there. So being aware of those things. Um, As far as really practical things, I talk to myself out loud. I know it seems crazy sometimes, but if I'm starting to feel shame or struggle and believe lies about myself, I will literally talk to myself as though I'm talking to a beloved child, like you're doing okay. This isn't your fault. I know you feel this way, but this is the truth. Everybody messes up sometimes. It's all going to be okay. And I find that it is very difficult to think opposing thoughts than what I'm saying. And so that's why to me, it's important to say it out loud because if I'm saying it out loud, it's really difficult for my brain to think something different. If I have any, like even intrusive thoughts, 
So for self-harm urges and suicidal ideation, there's a very wide spectrum from, you know, this random thought that pops into your head once in a while to actually acting on it. And usually when I'm starting to not do well, it'll start with intrusive thoughts, things that pop into my head. They're unwanted, um, but they happen every now and then. Anytime that happens, I tell someone. It actually used to be Steve because for a while, um, Steve and his wife, Lindsay, were the only people in my lives who I could really talk to. And some schedule things made it make sense that we were, we were able to talk to each other. I'd moved to a new city. I'd moved to Nashville and barely knew anybody. You know, sometimes I'd, I'd text Steve and Lindsay, and there were a couple of times where I was like, I can't go home. And so I'd drive the three hours to stay with them Aww. for a couple days because like they were safe people to me. It was the same thing with that couple that um, told me, I'm not disappointed in you. They were like, hey, you're going to stay with us for a while. So just telling someone, it really sucks at first when you start doing that because there's the shame associated with it. But over time, when you realize this is just a symptom, this is not me, this is not something I want, um, I don't have to be ashamed of it because it's not anything I'm doing. It really takes the sting out of it. So now, you know, that person is my husband and, you know, some people have code words for it um, or for when they're having, you know, a bad day. I'll just say like, hey, I'm having self-harm thoughts or I'm having dark thoughts or, you know, I had thoughts of this or thoughts of that come into my head. I'm careful also with my language to separate it from myself. So I say I had thoughts about this not I'm thinking about this because it's important to me to remember that it's not me. It's not coming from me. It's coming from a disease. So you don't want to own that thought. You want right. to recognize it as a passing, albeit incredibly dangerous thought that could mm -hmm. take root. So you yep. invite it to, hey, there you are. Move along. Yep, exactly. I acknowledge it. I don't want to ignore it because then it gives it room to grow, but I acknowledge it. I don't take ownership of it and don't identify myself with it. And then I do the things I need to, to stay safe. Do you have any protocols so that like, if there's an issue that seems to not go away, then do you tell your husband, hey, I've hidden a, something that I could use to harm myself. It's there. Please take it. Do you get to that point? Because I know some people who do. I have in the past. There have been times in the past where I have given implements to people, but it's been honestly years since that's happened because I think I've learned to be ruthless with self-care and ruthless with the disease and not let it get to that point. That's part of why the first time a thought comes into my head, I tell my husband, you know, and I think people just have random thoughts, you know, like you're driving down the highway and you're like, Oh my gosh, what if I got in a car wreck? Mm -hmm. Not thoughts like that. Thoughts that 
involve like actually hurting myself. I just wanted to make that distinction because, mm-hmm. you know, listeners who may not struggle with that may, I don't want them to think like, if you just have like this random thought and it's not a pattern for you, it doesn't cause fear. It's just a weird thought. Like our brains just do weird things. But if it came to that, I absolutely would be like, hey, there's this thing or hey, like I need you to hide the knives from me or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been working with my doctor to adjust my medications and I'm tapering off of one of them. And as I get to the end of tapering off, you need to take longer and longer towards the end. And so I made one step down and a dose too quick. And within about a week, I started really struggling and I got depressed. And then I started having thoughts of suicide, thoughts of self-harm. And I was like, okay, like this isn't okay. And so, you know, I went back up on my medication. So, you know, that was under the supervision of my doctor and understanding like, hey, this is a sign that things are not going well with my body chemistry. You know, I, I do work with my doctor and that was when I got on meds, that was why, because I was realizing I can't do the work I need to do in therapy if I can't even cope with the thoughts in my head. Yeah, because the chemistry has to be right to do the heavy emotional and wellness lifting, right? It was for me. I think some people are able to do it, but I do think one of the great benefits of antidepressants is just helping you get stable enough that you can work through a lot of the things that you need to work through. And for many people, it's a one-time thing. You know, you only have one major depressive episode, but for some of us like me, it's a chronic thing. And so Mm -hmm. you need to learn to watch for the symptoms and to take care of yourself like you would for any chronic illness. And you know, what's interesting is I know you write a ton about self-care and some Mm -hmm. great ideas for self-care. And I love your approach to that, Sarah, because you share what works for you, Mm -hmm. but you also provide a menu of ideas that might work for other people because it's kind of a plug and play thing, like Mm -hmm. morning rituals and things that are relaxing and evening rituals. And like my morning actually begins the night before. If I don't get enough sleep or if I don't, if I don't empty my mind of the stuff of today, then tomorrow's just Mm -hmm. confusing. But that kind of preparation might drive somebody else crazy, and it's Mm -hmm. certainly not self-care. So I just love the way you offer your readers the opportunity to mix and match. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I've learned that self-care is so much more than like bubble baths and dark chocolate and stuff, which... Those have their place, and I mention those as well because there are benefits of both. But it's really almost like parenting yourself. Hmm. If you had a kid and you know, like, everything's fun and games tonight, and they want to stay up late, and that's cool, but tomorrow's going to be really painful for them if they don't get enough sleep because they're going to be grumpy and upset and frustrated all day. Well, then the right choice, even if they don't want it, is to put them to bed or 
you know, the right choice. Sometimes when people are severely depressed, they struggle to get out of bed or take a shower, you know, get clean. Like you don't want to, and it might feel impossible, but sometimes the right choice to take care of yourself is to just keep putting one foot in front of the other and doing like even the bare minimum things like brushing your teeth and, Mm, you know, take a bath or turn on the shower and sit under it if you don't even have the energy to stand up because that's a real thing. Yeah. And exercise. And for me, if I want to be productive and feel good about my day and feel like I have clarity and don't feel overwhelmed and anxious, I need to plan my day the night before. Me too. Otherwise, the day is just out the window. So I have to pick two to three things that I want to accomplish. I want to pick six and that never works. It never works. Yeah. Yeah. So I create a little success list. And if I accomplish like two things, I put like two, maybe three things if I'm feeling really ambitious on it. And sometimes the things are like, go on a walk or get up Mm -hmm. by whatever time, then that makes sure that like, I have a sense of accomplishment. I don't feel anxious. I'm moving towards Mm -hmm. what I want. I feel good about my day. And all of that plays into my mental health, even though it's not diet, exercise, meds, therapy. I'm with you, sister. Yeah. Well, as we wrap up, as I read the article that kind of put you on the map, I wondered what happened at the end of the day, as you wrapped up the conversation, the first time you said, yeah, me too. Were you able to help the guy understand? Are you still friends? What happened after you caught yourself going, yeah, me too? I think it was helpful. I think that three or four people who were there were all shocked But I think they wound up being, I don't know if grateful is the right term, but like initially when I said like, oh yeah, I I know there was like this intense discomfort. I was uncomfortable. We were all uncomfortable. But as I began to share and explain it in a really relatable way, it was almost like everyone just kind of like breathed a sigh of relief, like oh, I get it. Like something really mysterious had been demystified. And I think that was helpful. I really do think it was. If nothing else, then just because it gave that guy who I'm so grateful he has no idea what this is like. So grateful. I don't want anybody to ever know what it's like. But I think it did give him a little piece of understanding and like, oh, okay, like that doesn't seem so crazy. You know, it doesn't seem so selfish. It doesn't seem so bizarre that somebody would get to that point. As far as are we friends, you know, he works in a different office than I worked in. And I would say we're good acquaintances. You know, every time we see each other, you know, we hug and say hi. And I think we did get a bit closer after that, just simply by virtue of the fact that we don't see each other often. You know, that makes it tough to be BFFs, but I do think it was helpful. And I think also for me, I've done a lot of that online 
And in settings like this, where it's like, okay, I'm going to share my story on a podcast. I know what's happening, but it made me a lot braver to be able to have those conversations in the moment Mm. and to be unashamed of what I've struggled with. And I can't even count how many conversations I've had with Mm. people because of that. So it helped you get better to make yourself vulnerable in that safer setting. And you weren't even sure it was going to be safe when you said it, right? Yeah, I had no clue. And I think doing that and taking the risk and also getting to a place where I'm a lot healthier myself has made me just really willing to have those conversations and Mm. also to be okay if people don't get it. Like if someone doesn't understand, if they want to persist in their beliefs, that's okay. What I'm doing is not for them. It's not helpful and healthy for them to persist in some of those beliefs, but it's not a reflection on me. It's not a reflection on my journey. And it's not to say that I shouldn't keep doing what I believe God's called me to do at this season of my life. All right. Last two questions. Um, what advice or encouragement do you have for someone who loves someone dealing with self-harm or has attempted suicide? The big thing is to be okay not knowing and being okay saying, I don't know. I think it is so powerful to have someone sit with you who is completely okay admitting they don't have answers but they're going to walk with you anyway. Having someone say, you must be hurting so badly to be at this point. And I don't understand what that's like, but we can find the help you need together. I can help you navigate this. I'm not going to give up on you. I'm going to still love you. And those words that my friends said to me, are so powerful saying I'm not disappointed in you is huge, huge. I've had the opportunity working at a residential center to kind of pay those words forward a few times. And I know the impact they had in my life. And yet I'm still shocked every time to see how healing it is for someone to confess. Like I just, you know, cut myself or, I'm thinking about ending my life and, you know, even like I have a plan or I just tried and saying like, that's awful. I'm sorry you're hurting. I'm not disappointed in you and I'm not upset at you. It's okay to be upset, to be sad or worried, but it's not helpful to direct that towards the person who's suffering. It's almost like what you were saying. It's like when someone attempts to harm themselves or succeeds, there is clearly so much shame attached to that. Mm-hmm. It's one thing to say, I'm concerned about you. I'm sorry you feel this way. But it's a whole other thing to say, I'm so disappointed in you. That's just a dump truckload of shame on yeah. on top of a mountain of shame. It's just the worst 
thing that we can possibly say to project shame on someone else, isn't it? Yeah. Things like, how could you do this? Or how could you do this to me? Or you should be happy because whatever, you know, you've got a great family or like your life is perfect or like at least you're not whatever, whatever. All of those things are so shame inducing and none of them are helpful. And I get it. It's hard when you are worried about someone Yes, and you're scared. It's yeah. hard to control your own emotions, your own face, your own voice. Yes. And so you probably need to talk to somebody to help manage those emotions. Like I'm a huge advocate of therapy for everybody, everybody, but Look, it took you five times to find something that was working for you. Awesome. Yeah. Good girl. Yeah. And after every one of the first four times, I didn't want to go back. But eventually, I found someone. And I think usually people find someone much sooner than I do. Um, But I also share that just so people know, like, hey, like, sometimes it's a process. But you're worth whatever it takes to get better. And your loved one is worth whatever it takes to get better, no matter what that is. And before we leave this topic, if someone doesn't quite know what to say to someone who is dealing with self-harm or suicidal ideation, beautifulbetween.com forward slash what to say, a two-page resource guide for how to prepare yourself to help someone else. Yeah. So last question. Sure. What advice or encouragement do you have for someone who has never told a soul that they are struggling with suicidal thoughts or that they are engaging in self-harm on an occasional or a regular basis? I know I just said this a minute ago, but you really, really need to know that you are worth what it takes to get better. You deserve to be better. You don't deserve this. You don't deserve the pain. You don't deserve the hurt, none of those things are true. And the disease lies. So it's really important to get some people in your life who can help you find what's true. If you don't feel like you have a friend or a family member, you can tell and they'll, you know, help you figure stuff out. There's all sorts of resources to get therapy to get medication, to work with a doctor. There's reduced costs or free clinics in almost every city. You can get really affordable counseling online. You can text the crisis text line. I know it's scary to ask for help. I know that it feels like you've done something wrong and you might feel ashamed, but asking for help And continuing to ask until you get the help you need is the best thing you'll ever do. Wow, Sarah, thank you. And we'll have this in the show notes, but I want to make sure that we provide this information to someone that uh, you've just spoken to. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255. 1-800-273-8255. So with that, um, any final words, my friend? Just that, you know, I really hope those who are listening would, above all else, just feel loved 
listening to this and feel like there's nothing wrong with them because there isn't, you know, you may have an illness, you may have these struggles, but there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing to be ashamed of. And you are so worthy of getting better. Yeah. Thanks again, Sarah. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Unfortunately, most of us know just how difficult it is to know what to say to people we love who have attempted suicide or friends and loved ones who are dealing with the loss of a friend or family member due to suicide. Sarah Robinson has created a terrific resource, incredibly useful, to help us know what to say and what not to say. There's a link to that guide in the show notes. I encourage you to download it and uh, to review it and just to keep it handy. And if you've heard Sarah's story and you're relieved because now you know you're not the only one who has similar thoughts, think about someone you know who will love and accept you unconditionally. And please reach out to someone you trust and share your thoughts and your feelings and your fears. It's possible that no one comes to mind for you. And I'm sorry that you feel so isolated and alone, but there is still help. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is just a few digits away. That number is 1-800-273-8255. The number's in the show notes. I'm going to give this to you one more time. 1-800-273-8255. The world needs you here tomorrow. I'm Tracy Winchell. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We hope this episode has helped you in some way. If so, we'd love to hear from you. Maybe someone you care about might benefit from the Reboots Podcast. It's easy to share from our website, rebootspodcast.com. The Reboots Podcast is a production of Winchell Storyworks Incorporated, a company dedicated to helping businesses and individuals know, share, and live their stories in order to impact the world around us in a positive way and to achieve financial freedom.